chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They heard Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Well, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the leaders here at Christchurch. And we're going to spend some time looking now at that passage from Acts chapter 4. So please do keep your Bibles open. I'm going to be referring to it as we go along. And as we usually do, I want you to be able to be ready to listen. So if you have little ones with you and you need to keep them occupied, find something to do, then I'll give you a moment to do that just now. If you're going to have children staying in with you, well, make sure they are comfortable and able to, to listen. It's great to have you with us. Um, and I hope you do find that this is going to be something that uh, encourages you and gives you confidence in the gospel. While you do that, I'll just uh, bring you up to speed on what we've been doing so far in the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts is written all about the very first Christians and how when the Holy Spirit came on them, well, they were experiencing a new normal. Everything changed and life from then on was going to be unrecognisable from what it was in the past. And we really want to plug into that as a church to, to remind ourselves what it's like to be the people of God filled with the Spirit. So as we've been looking through the book of Acts, we've been picking up on what the normals are for the people of God. It's not that we see the examples and think that we have to follow in their footsteps at every single turn, but it does teach us a lot about what the people of God are like and how the Spirit makes a difference in the life of the church. And we're going to see that today. We're going to see um, an occasion where the very first Christians and their message were put on trial. And we're not going to have to follow exactly everything they say when they're on trial, but I really do hope we're going to be encouraged and given confidence in the message that they believed and in the message that's been passed down to us. 
Well, that's what's going to come up. I hope you're ready uh, to begin. Please do keep your Bibles open, as I said. Uh, hopefully we're ready to begin, so I'm going to pray for God's help as we start. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you that you have equipped your church with your spirit. And thank you that you have equipped your church with your spirit-inspired word. And that's what we have open in front of us now in Acts 4. And so we do pray that your spirit accompanies the preaching of your word. We pray that what we hear and what is spoken will be things that are true and that go deep into our hearts with your spirit. And that your spirit would use this to bring us to be more and more the church you would have us to be today. So we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we have to do something hard, and maybe something we don't really want to do, then we always begin to question ourselves. Is it really worth doing it? Do, do I really have to do it? We might qu question our original convictions. Is this really going to work anyway? So it can come up, for example, in trivial things like going for a run. You go for a run, you come home, and you're tired, and you're achy, and you're sticky and you're sweaty. And you question yourself, why do I do this to myself? You question the method and you doubt your convictions. You think, is this really the best way to get fit? And am I really going to see results at the end of it? Maybe you ask the same questions of revision or bringing up children. When the tears and tantrums come, you might ask, am I doing the right thing? Are building boundaries and, and consequences, is that really going to yield the results? Is that really going to train and teach my child? Or is it just going to bring me a great big headache? Is it going to be worth it in the end? And we often ask the same questions, often just in our heads. When it comes to the challenges and discouragements of living for and speaking for Jesus, you see the look on somebody's face when you've just told them, yeah, you, you believe in the resurrection of a man who is dead come back to life. And you believe that that is a real historical fact. And you start to question, when I put it like that, is that, is that really what I believe? And maybe Christianity gets a bashing in the media or in the staff room. Or a prominent church leader denies that the Bible is true. And, well, you start to question, am I, am I really the lunatic here? Have I just been taken in by some sort of fantasy? Or maybe you are sure of your convictions. Maybe you, you, you're absolutely certain that what the Bible teaches is true, but, well, building your life on it and speaking about it just doesn't seem to get you anywhere. doesn't seem to bring any results. I mean, it's something that we as church elders have to keep in mind every time we meet together. If teaching people that from the Bible that Jesus is a real human and the Son of God, that he died on the cross and rose again, well, if, if that's not bringing in the numbers, if, if that's not kind of bringing change in people, then, well, do we need to look at something else? Are we really doing it right? Do we maybe need to, to tweak it, make things more palatable? If the current of public opinion thinks that Jesus is irrelevant and the Bible's outdated, then, well, do we stand down and make room for that? Or do we step up? 
with courage and conviction and say the gospel is true and it is relevant and it's good news that everyone needs to hear. Well, yes, but where do we get the courage and conviction to, to be able to, to be like that? Well, Acts chapter 4 was written to encourage Christians in exactly our position. The account in front of us in chapter 4, like I said earlier, it's not a, a manual to give us instructions that we can follow exactly in the footsteps of all the people here and maybe guilt us into being a little bit better at it. No, this is the account of the first Christians written down to prove to Christians in generations later that the message we believe really is true. It really is powerful and it really is necessary. So as we read Acts chapter 4 this morning, we're going to see that it answers four questions about the message of Jesus. It's going to answer the question, is it working? Should we really be speaking it? It's going to answer the question, is it important? Is it worth speaking it? It's going to answer the question, is it true? And it's going to answer the question, is it optional? Can we switch it off for a while? And for each question, the author, a guy called Luke, well, he's going to play that out as a narrative, a true narrative. And in, in each occasion, we're going to see that the outward appearance of things can be discouraging. He is real about that. It might feel like it's not powerful, like it's not true, like it's not important. And yet each time, Luke's going to show us the truth breaking through irresistibly, irrefutably, powerfully. In order that Christians 2,000 years later, like you and me, can come away with courage and conviction to continue in the gospel. So let's have a look, shall we? Have a look at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. And here's where we get our answer to the question, is it working? So at this point in Acts, we're in the aftermath of a miracle that's just happened in chapter 3. So if you weren't here last week, let me just fill you in. In chapter 3, Peter and John have just overseen the healing of a man who's never been able to walk in his life. They didn't do it, but it was in the name of Jesus. And when Peter explains this thing to a crowd, he says that it's Jesus who did it. That is proof of God's plan. And he points them to the fact that Jesus fulfills all of God's plan and invites them into that plan so that they can know forgiveness in Jesus' name. Well, into chapter 4, and preaching that has gotten Peter and John into a spot of trouble. Because verse 1, along come the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. And they don't like what Peter and John are saying. Let's have a closer think about these guys. We've got a bad habit, I think, sometimes in 21st century Christianity. If you've been a Christian any length of time and have been reading the Bible in Bible studies, I think we've got a bad habit of reading words like chief priests or Pharisees or Sadducees and just thinking straight away in our minds, pantomime villain. But the truth is that these men were, were really important men in that culture. They were really respectable. They were really influential. People would listen to them because what they had to say was in the main wise and good, and they were long-established leaders. They are quite possibly really nice people with lovely families. And they played a vital role in the peace and the order of the nation. They were public servants giving themselves for the good of civil life. 
And they were probably the most highly qualified people you'd get around in those days. Spent more time reading books, more time under the, uh, the tutelage of the best professors, more time in university, and with more qualifications than anyone in that day could even get their head around. So think of them as uh, like a, a government cabinet, but made up of university professors and Nobel Prize winners and philanthropists. In short, what these guys thought really mattered. And on the other hand, don't forget that Peter and John are from out of town. They are originally fishermen from some northern backwater that nobody ever went to. Uh, lovely blokes, an important job, fishing, you know, but you probably don't know the name of your local fishermen. They don't make podcasts, they don't publish books, and they're certainly not the authority on recession economics or foreign policy, or, for that matter, on Old Testament hermeneutics. They clearly don't know what they're doing. So, in verse 3, there's no fuss made about it. The uh, Sadducees and chief priests and temple guard just seize them and they put them in prison. Question, is it working? Is preaching Jesus the fulfilment of God's plan? Is it working? As the sun sets behind the temple that night, and Peter and John's wives put their kids to bed with their dad locked up in jail, we might ask, is it working? Okay, the Holy Spirit has come on the believers. They're sharing their eyewitness accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They've been showing that this was God's plan all the way from the beginning, opening the scriptures, but the powers that be have decided that that's got to stop. The powers that be have flexed their muscles and there's been no miracle of getting them out of prison, not this time anyway. The message is downplayed. The messengers are locked up. It's not the accepted norm. So is this right? Is this the pattern? Is, is it working? And yet, at the moment in the story, where the two most prominent followers of Jesus are locked in a pitch black dungeon, it's at this point that Luke drops in verse four. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. 5,000, that's 2,000 more than at the last count in the end of chapter two. 2,000 more people have come to believe. Is it working? Yeah, you bet it's working. Uh, Luke is writing this to show discouraged Christians that you can chain up the messengers, but you can never chain up the message of Jesus. I mean, humanly speaking, this is a disaster of a day's work when you end up in prison. But preaching Jesus, the Son of God risen from the dead, it works. Because that is how God has chosen to grow his kingdom and spread it throughout the world, preaching about Jesus. And when Jesus is preached, God works. Yeah, it works. But it is clearly quite costly. It works, but is it worth it? And we need to ask that question next, and that's what Luke helps us think about. Is it really that important? So from verses 5 to 12, is it important? Because the next day, Peter and John are put on trial to account for the preaching that they're doing and the miracle that happened. And they're going to face a crunch moment where they're going to now have to decide whether to, whether to stand down 
uh, and make room for the teaching of the Sadducees. Or whether to step up and go out on a limb and keep on preaching this. Now, to give the context here, the, the problem that the rulers have isn't so much that the miracles happened, because that's quite a good thing. It's what's being taught alongside it. And here's why it's important that we understand verse 1 and verses 5 and 6, who's actually a part of this group, part of this council. Because verse 2 tells us that these guys already know what's being taught, that they're preaching in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The problem the Sadducees had was that their particular sect of Judaism had as a core belief that there was no afterlife. There was no resurrection. And what's more, the priests, and some of the guys named there in verse 6, Annas and Caiaphas, well, they've already been named already in the Bible, in the book of John, as some of the people who were there at this very council when they executed Jesus. They're not so fussed that the resurrection of the dead is being proclaimed, but certainly not in Jesus, because they've done away with him. So here are Peter and John filling the heads of the ordinary people with uh, ideas of life after death, hope of future forgiveness, and saying that the Jesus, who they also crucified just weeks before, is really the promised Messiah. And all of that implicitly accuses the Sadducees of being mistaken and the priests of killing God's king. And so they have given Peter and John the night to think about it, and they ask in verse 7 a question that is their merciful attempt to try and get them off the hook. They say, who did you say again was at the heart of all this? And all Peter and John need to do at this point is step down and, and say, it's God's doing. And say no more about what God is doing. I would all be over. So they need to think, is it really that important to name the name of Jesus? Is it really going to be worth it? I mean, leaving out his death and his resurrection, that's going to make things easier, right? So, is it that important? We need an answer, but we don't get the answer just of Peter on his own. We get the very, 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 very best answer that could possibly be given, because in verse 8, the Holy Spirit fills Peter, and we get Spirit, uh, Peter's answer with the Holy Spirit in verse 10. He says, Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. He said it. And whom God raised from the dead. He said it. That this man stands before you healed. Can you see how inflammatory that would have been? Peter doesn't stand down for the sake of unity or peace or harmony. He steps up to make it as clear and as loud as he can that this message is about Jesus because the miracle was performed by Jesus. And Peter even quotes scripture to them, the experts in scripture, to show them what scripture means. That God's very Bible predicted this whole situation and it's all according to plan. He says, verse 11, Jesus is the, is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. 
That's interesting, the original text, you could even look it up in our English translations. If you look in Psalm 118, it says, the stone the builders rejected, as if it's the stone the builders out there rejected. But Peter identifies that with them. He says, the stone you builders rejected is the one that God has made the center of his plan. It's bold. Now, you might be impressed, or you might be inspired by Peter's tenacity here. But remember, this isn't here just to inspire us or guilt us into trying to be more confrontational with the gospel, because this is more about the gospel than it is about us. So it's revealing to us the answer to that question. Do you think it's important that we preach the name of Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, yes, it is important. It's vitally important because... Jesus, although he was rejected, is actually the cornerstone. He is at the very center of God's plan. And he was all along, long before the very first Christmas and he came into the world. God had planned that he was always going to be rejected by Annas and Caiaphas. He was always going to be crucified because that was God's plan. The rejected stone was going to be the foundation on which God is going to build his kingdom. It's revealing to us that there can be no good news about God without Jesus. And that's why Peter says what he says next in verse 12, how he can make this striking exclusive claim. He says, verse 12, salvation is found under no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, if this is true, let me just draw out a quick implication for us. If this is true, it means that we can't bring any good news, no comfort, nothing about God or his plan or purposes to anyone unless we are introducing them to the one on whom it's all built, on Jesus. So whatever we invite people into when we share our faith with them, unless it's built on the cornerstone, then it's going to be just as useless as Annas and Caiaphas's beautiful temple hiding behind the beautiful gate, if you remember from chapter 3. This stands impressive, but is actually just useless. It can't offer any meaningful restoration and only succeeds at keeping the broken on the outside. Without Jesus, no offer is acceptable. Well, I hope that you've seen as we've gone through this, and I hope that your confidence and conviction in the gospel has grown. I hope you've seen that speaking about Jesus is working because that's how God builds his kingdom. And I hope you've seen that speaking about Jesus is important because Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the focal point of all God's work in the world. He's the only name we have available to us to bring us to God. But we still need courage to stand, to step up and not stand down. Because, well, that was a controversial claim then that Peter made. And it's controversial now, isn't it? Jesus is the only way to God. Can you say that? I mean, what about other beliefs and other cultures? Shouldn't we be more respectful of them? Well, it all depends on the answer to the next question, which Luke moves us into. The question, is it true? 
Because it's vital that we know that. Is it true? Verses 13 to 16. At this point, Peter has stopped talking. It's a great big climax, and now it's the time for the council to respond. But as Luke um, begins this next section, he, he reminds us a little bit about uh, the perspective that's going on. Who's talking to who? He reminds us that speaking about Jesus can feel like speaking out of turn because the first thing that the religious leaders note about this whole situation is verse 13. They realise that these guys were unschooled and quite ordinary people. And unlike Peter's sermon to the masses in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, this ruling council aren't persuaded. After that great climax of verses 11 and 12, you can imagine that we're just waiting for a groundswell and people to come repenting, except they're stony-faced. They're silent. The electricity in the room has become tension and the moment's gone. And they look down their glasses and they say, okay, thank you for your opinion and turn to confer to one another. When you see the unschooled ordinary men face up to the, the religious elites of the day, you start to question those convictions again. Well, I think that speaking about Jesus is powerful, and I think it's important, but now that they're facing the authorities on the matter, the, no, the ones who know the Bible a lot better, maybe we start to doubt. Maybe, maybe it's that the riffraff in the crowds, well, they're taken in, but not the elite. Perhaps this new movement of Christians was, was all about the hype and the rumours, the, the kind of thing that a crowd could get worked up about. But, well, those who know their stuff better? Not them. In the cool, calculated light of day, they look down and see that these are just unschooled and ordinary men. So let's prepare ourselves as we read on for the, the finest intellectual refutation of all this nonsense. And yet, as these upstart fishermen with fish scales under their fingernails and homemade tattoos on their biceps, as they stand before the finest suits, the educated aristocrats, Luke stresses twice in this section that, well, the experts don't actually have a leg to stand on. Verse 14, they can't say anything. Verse 16, they can't deny it. And Lucas stresses that this message of Jesus has come from witnesses. Witnesses are powerful. Witness is a powerful thing. I mean, think about how it works in our law court. When someone is accused of a crime, there can be different types of testimony. You can get an expert. And the expert is is respected by the court because they've got qualifications and, and experience. And the expert can tell you how things could have played out. They can theorize, they can model, they can predict. And eventually they can come to some sort of picture about what might have happened. And on the other hand, you've got another type of testimony and that is the witness testimony. And the witness testimony, well, it's simply that they saw what happened. And so they know what happened. Witness is more powerful than expert. To illustrate it, suppose I was on trial for vandalism, say graffiti, and suppose somebody saw me. Now, I'm on trial and I could bring into court, in my defence, an expert 
a professor in psychology who's got doctorates and degrees coming out of her ears and 40, 50 years experience. And she can say from all her expert knowledge that I'm definitely not the type of person who would have done this graffiti. But all of that learning, that high status, that respected position, that experience, well, that counts for nothing. Because in comes the little old eyewitness. Not qualified, other than the fact that they've seen me. Witness trumps qualification. Witness is powerful. Witness is undeniable. And witness is what's thrown this ruling council into a spin. At the end of verse 13, they know they're dealing here with witnesses. They, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So it's eyewitness testimony. Verse 14, they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them. So there was nothing that they could say. And they even admit it in verse 16. Well, we can't deny it. Here we were, poised for the greatest refutation of Christianity ever seen. And they end up saying, well, I can't really de deny it. So now we see that they're not resistant because they know better, but because they don't want it to be true. They cannot deny the message of Jesus is true, and the proof of it is right there before their very eyes. If you are ever discouraged and feel a bit silly about your beliefs in Jesus, you think it's unfeasible, unfeasible to those who know better. If consensus says it's just all a bit of nonsense, really, or if people try and persuade you that it was just all made up by some long-bearded theologians in their ivory towers in the fourth century. Well, well, Luke wrote this to be passed on to encourage you that the gospel message was never invented by churchmen. It was recorded and reported by eyewitnesses. And when put on trial, in front of the most resistant critics, the message of Jesus couldn't be disproved and the witnesses couldn't be discredited. So is it true? You bet it's true, yes. So is it working? Yes. Is it important? Yes, it's vital, but is it true? Yes. Yes, undeniably, incontrovertibly, it is true. There is no jail that can keep the gospel in and there's no argument that can tear the gospel down. And so the council haven't got much else left. So they just have to do the only thing that's left to them. They just say to Peter and John, so um, just please stop. We're not going to get rid of this. We just need you to stop it, please. And verse 18, it tells us that Peter and John are ordered to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. So what are they going to do? Well, that raises the fourth and final question in this passage. Is it optional? Is it optional? At this stage, a lot is at stake for Peter and John. They are Jews and they've been Jewish all their life. And they strongly identify with the people and, and the systems governing their culture. Are they really going to alienate themselves from that? Just for the sake of the gospel message. What might happen to, their, to them and to their families if they disobey this order? I mean, they've already spent one night in prison. Do you think it might get a bit worse for them later on? After all, they've seen this council in session before. 
at the trial of Jesus. And they know what happened there. So are there times when it's worth not speaking in Jesus' name? Are there seasons in the life of a Christian or in the life of a church where uh, peace and harmony and unity and safety come first before speaking in the name of Jesus? Well, that, they might sound like valid questions, but here's how Peter and John frame that same issue in verse 19. Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? To them it's clear. Is it optional? No. As for us, they say, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Because here's the thing. The Bible teaches that the stone the builders rejected has in fact become the cornerstone. Jesus, who is rejected, has become the one at the heart of God's plan. He is God's only saviour, our only hope. And so no, it's not optional, but it's mandated to these apostles for the sake of everyone who's going to listen to them and every generation since, for our sake. It's mandated to them that it's not optional. They've got to go out and speak and speak and speak. And if they'd have listened to human beings and not to God, well, we wouldn't be here reading our Bibles today. If they'd have waited for a more suitable time so that they could speak about Jesus, there would have been no such time and no church. But here's the work of the Spirit. He filled them. He empowered them. God was never going to let it be that there was no church. The Spirit filled them. The Spirit empowered them. The Spirit emboldened them to speak despite all the warnings and threats. And that is why today you and I can have confidence in that gospel that is passed down to us. Because God's own very Spirit accompanies that message to make it powerful and make it work to bring people into God's kingdom. It is God's own very spirit who's taught the church through the ages that the rejected Jesus has become the cornerstone and that we build on him. It's God's very spirit who has always preserved the truth of that testimony that the witnesses gave. And it was always the spirit who gave God's people the courage and boldness to speak. To do that in Peter's day and in the days after, the centuries later, and right down to the time that we heard the gospel. Because Luke has written the book of Acts to encourage and confirm to us the power, the necessity and the truth of the message of Jesus. So that you and I can be equipped with that confidence and conviction we need when we face the choice of stepping down or stepping up. So, if you have ever felt discouraged, or if you will do in future, if you go, go and feel discouraged that being a Christian puts you in the minority, it's not really the accepted norm, well, Luke would encourage you. You can know that your whole faith, our whole faith, is, is built on the one who's rejected in the first place. We're going to be in the minority. If you ever feel stupid, for believing in miracles and a man rising from the dead. Well, you can know that the resurrection was never written down as an invention, but only ever recorded as incontrovertible truth. 
if you ever feel like plugging away with speaking the message of Jesus is just bearing no fruit, well, you can know that God has always used Christians speaking about Jesus to grow his church. It works. If you ever feel pessimistic that workplaces and public forums are doing more and more and more to shut up the spread of the gospel, well, you can know that it's always been that way, but that the Spirit has always filled God's people and empowered them and emboldened them to speak despite threats because God's people know that it's not an option to turn it off. My hope and prayer, as uh, the more and more we keep on delving into Acts, is that the more we'll gain confidence and conviction in that gospel message, so that, that can make us into a church who doesn't stand down to make room for the prevailing winds of culture, but that steps up in the power of the Spirit to live and speak in Jesus' name in our city. Let's pray for God's help as we want to do that. Father God, we see that your spirit has always accompanied your message and filled your church. And we want to be a spirit-filled church. We want to have confidence and conviction in this message, in the gospel message, in what we know to be true about Jesus, dying and rising from the dead. Lord, we pray that your spirit does that for us. We pray that we won't uh, be swayed, that we will know for sure that the gospel is true, it is powerful, it is necessary, and that we would be people who are so filled with that conviction and so filled with your spirit that we will just speak and speak and speak, knowing it's not optional. We pray that we would see things clearly as Peter and John did, that the choice between speaking or not speaking is a choice between listening to you or listening to someone else. And we pray that we would be filled with the spirit, with confidence, in this truth passed on to us, that we could be people who speak for you and Jesus' name in this city. Amen.